I want you to imagine this scenario. There's a group of people that you love deeply. Your relationship to each one of them is deeply meaningful to you. You've invested in them. You've encouraged them. You've taught them. You've cried with them. You've prayed for them. They've blessed you. You've blessed them. And now the time has come to say goodbye. And you know for a fact that you will never see them again. And now let's suppose that email and FaceTime and WhatsApp and any other form of digital communication does not exist. Letters, when it's even possible to send them, may take months, if not a year, to arrive at their destination, if they ever arrive at all. And additionally, not everyone can read and write, and the materials with which to write a letter are expensive, and they're often hard to come by. You have one last opportunity to meet with this small group of people for a limited amount of time. What do you say to them? What will your final message, your final communication to them be? This is exactly the situation in which Paul found himself as he completed his third missionary journey. Now, as we've worked through Acts, you know we've been skipping some passages recently. But now, but know this, Paul has traveled back around to all the churches that he had planted, encouraging them, checking up on them, exhorting them, and being zealous for their health and their welfare. And during these travels, he has begun to experience a growing compulsion from the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. He doesn't know exactly for what purpose, but he does know that suffering awaits him there. So as he makes this circuit of churches, the last stop that he, at at which he, he finds himself, he's on a ship bound for Jerusalem and the ship makes port at a small city called Miletus. It's a city a few miles south on the coast from Ephesus. And because Paul wants to get back to Jerusalem by Pentecost, he doesn't want to take the time to travel inland to Ephesus to meet the church leaders there. Now remember, at one point, Paul had spent at least three years living and ministering in Ephesus. A strong church had been built there. Timothy, one of Paul's primary disciples, was left as a leader there at the Ephesian church. And Ephesus became the focal point, the sending point for the word of God to all the province of Asia. So Ephesus is a key city, but Paul doesn't have the time to travel there. So at Miletus, he sends a message to the Ephesian church asking that all the elders from that church would come meet him at the port of Miletus. And they all do that. They all come. And Paul, knowing this is the last time he will ever see them, proceeds to share with them his final exhortations. And today, we get to listen in as Paul encourages these men, as Paul says goodbye. Maybe you could even say as Paul gives his famous last words. So I'll be reading this event, this account in the book of Acts in chapter 20. I'll be beginning with verse 17 and reading on through the end of the section. Acts 20, verse 17. 
from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the, Holy, by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, I commit you to God. And to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Broadly speaking, this passage can be divided into two parts. What Paul shares, it, first of all, is his example. Paul's example, what his life and ministry have looked like up until this point. So first, Paul's example. Secondly, Paul's charge. His charge to the Ephesian elders. What is he requiring of them? What is the task that they are supposed to continue and carry on? So basically he's saying, this is what I've done and how I've done it. Now this is what you're supposed to do. In each of those, Paul's example and then Paul's charge, we're going to look at three different points. I know this is going to get complicated because some of those points have subpoints, but I'll try to make it as clear as we can as we move along. So as it relates to Paul's example, the first thing that he draws out 
is his faithful preaching and teaching. That he has been a faithful preacher and teacher of the gospel throughout all of his ministry and all of his Christian life. Now, under this, there are a couple subpoints. First of all, his preaching has been unbiased. I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. So, first Paul's saying he didn't edit his message to make it more acceptable or to make it easier. Later, he tells them that he is innocent of their blood. Why? Because he preached the whole word of God to them. And for any of you, any of us, that have had opportunity either to share the gospel or perhaps to be in the context where we're teaching from the word of God, you know that there are passages that we would love to skip. You know that there are principles which are inconvenient, which seem to make the gospel a barrier. And we would like to to skip those. You know, we want to dance around them. You know, as a pastor, I can say passages that say, you know, when Jesus says, whatever you ask for in my name, you have it. I'd like to skip that passage because we all know that's not necessarily the experience that we've had, right? So, I mean, that's just an example. But Paul says, look, I have not edited the message to make it more acceptable. I haven't edited the gospel to make it easier. I have preached to you the full word of God. I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And then he says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God. So not only did he not edit his message, he didn't edit it based on who his audience might have been. He was preaching an unbiased gospel. He didn't change it to make it easier for Jews and harder for Gentiles or vice versa. He didn't make it easier on the Gentiles and harder on the Jews. So his faithful preaching and teaching were unbiased. And secondly, they were consistent in their content. Paul's preaching was consistent in its content. And what was the content? We've been through this a lot in in Acts. Paul boils it down for us and, and distills it so nicely. They must turn to God in repentance And have faith in Jesus. That's the consistent content of Paul's message. Repentance and faith. Preached it to Jews and Gentiles alike. We've already talked at length of the importance of repentance in a person coming to salvation. It's essential. A person cannot truly come to Jesus by faith if they do not repent. Actually, here's a better way to understand it. If someone truly comes to Jesus, they will repent. So you can imagine you're you're in total darkness. And you don't know this, but your, your clothes are covered with mud. And then you step into the light. And you're happy to be in the light. And you look down and you see that you look like a pig. So what do you do? You get cleaned up. And that's the image that I'm I'm, I'm using. It's it's a slight difference maybe. We say we have to repent to come to Jesus, but the two actually, in a sense, are at the same time. We We step into the light of Christ. The light of Christ reveals who we are, reveals the sin, reveals the the degradation, 
And so the mercy of Christ leads us into repentance. And he purifies us. And just for a moment, I, I want to speak to those of you here who maybe are not yet disciples of Jesus. Maybe you think you are. Maybe you even call yourself a Christian. But I want to ask you a question. What makes you a Christian? Because if your answer is, well, I, I come to church, or I've been baptized, or, well, I was raised in a Christian family, or I try to be really good, or I've done more good things than bad things, none of those things make you a Christian. And none of those things lead to salvation. Keith Green, uh, early Christian recording artist, was famous for saying that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And it's true. Participating in worship as part of the corporate body of Christ is something that follows salvation. It doesn't make you saved. So what does? What's the content, the consistent content of Paul's preaching? Repentance of sin. Recognizing, first of all, that we are not perfect. That we are sinful and so profoundly sinful and broken that it has separate us, separated us irreparably from God and his presence and his love. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are no longer sharers in God's glory because of our sin. So that's repentance, to acknowledge that sin and then to come to Christ by faith. Faith in what? Faith that because he is the perfect son of God who lived a perfect human life as both God and human. Because he was perfect, he could die in our place. Because the, the penalty for sin is death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So faith in Jesus means faith that he really is the Son of God and that he really did die in my place and that if I believe in him, his death takes the place of my death and then his life is lived in me. That is coming to Jesus. That is salvation. That is to become a Christian. Paul's preaching always had consistent content, repentance, faith in Jesus. The second overall aspect of Paul's example was a total surrender to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so first we had faithful preaching and teaching, and now we see a total surrender to the Holy Spirit. First of all, revealed in obedience. What is Paul's motivation to go to Jerusalem? Why is he doing this in the first place? He doesn't say that it's because he wants to see his friends. He doesn't say primarily that it's because he wants to connect, reconnect with the church leaders. He says he's compelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is leading him. The Holy Spirit is driving him. Do you remember when Paul first set out on his second missionary journey with Silas? And they were trying to decide where to go. 
And they tried to go here, oh, and the Holy Spirit blocked them. They tried to go there, and the Holy Spirit kept them from going there. And then finally, Paul, in a vision, saw this man in Macedonia saying, come over here. And Paul said, that's the voice of the Spirit. Let's go. A total surrender and obedience to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, along with obedience to the Spirit is a willingness to suffer for the gospel. Not only was suffering part of it, but the Holy Spirit actually led Paul into suffering over and over again. If you go back through and trace each city that Paul visits, you'll find that there was only one city that's recorded for us in Acts where he did not experience persecution. And that was in Derby. And of course, it was of, of differing intensities, of different kinds. But everywhere he goes, he's persecuted. And he's saying right now, he's like, I don't even know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, but all I know is this. Everywhere the Holy Spirit sends me, there's prison and hardships. <laughs> That's what's coming. And we often have an assumption, or we make an assumption, that suffering is something outside of the will of God for us. Like this, this highway, this road is the will of God, and suffering is off to the side. It's, a, it's like a detour and that somehow it's outside of his blessing and his care. And we are shocked then to think that God might not only allow suffering, but also ordain suffering in our lives, that the Holy Spirit would intentionally lead us into suffering for his purposes. But he does. All right, this is another time that I'm going to recycle an illustration I've used before, but it's from a long time ago, so I think uh, maybe some of you haven't heard it yet. If you have, just bear with me. When I was in second grade, I broke my arm. And um, my mom is a very caring woman. She's a nurse, so she knows how to deal with injury and those kinds of things. And I remember in taking me to this orthopedic clinic um, she had my arm on a book and then an ice pack here so that it wouldn't bend and it wouldn't be jostled. And she took such care with me. And we were sitting in this clinic room and these doctors and nurses were moving around. And remember, I'm about seven years old, so I'm not, and I'm in a lot of pain and I'm not entirely sure of what's going on. I'm a little bit scared. And the doctors, you know, poking and prodding and looking and x-ray and everything else. Ah, oh, hmm, yes. Hmm, you know, I don't know what they're saying. And then Again, this is my faulty seven-year-old memory. I, I understand this. But then, as I remember it, no warning at all. One of these medical professionals grabs my wrist, my arm, and the other one grabs my upper arm here. And my mom just watches this happen. <laughs> and then... It's bad enough, they, and then they yank it in opposite directions really hard. And I cry out. I think I don't, I don't remember exactly what my reaction was, but I remember I was stunned. And as I look back on that image, I just see myself sitting there, and the little kid in my, in my brain sees my mom just watching. This caring woman, this woman who's a nurse who has taken such care of all of her children and of me and of many others who aren't part of her biological family, she's watching this happen. Now, obviously, obviously this was all for my good. It had to, the bones had to be set. They had to be straightened so that my arm would heal properly, so that it wouldn't be crooked, so that it wouldn't cause me problems in the future. My mom knows this. She loves me. And because she loved me, she led me into this suffering. 
because the final result was truly for my good. And even that momentary suffering was going to alleviate much more longer future suffering. So I know this is only an analogy. It doesn't work perfectly to describe how God uses suffering in our lives for his glory and our good. But it is an example God does lead his people into suffering because he has the full picture and he sees the end goal. And oftentimes God's goal is not our goal. And our goals tend to be much shorter in their, uh, um, in their culmination, whereas God's are much greater but often farther away. But a, a willingness to suffer for the gospel characterized Paul and his ministry as part of his surrender to the Holy Spirit. Thirdly and finally, as it relates to Paul's example, he shows that the gospel was his highest priority. The gospel as his highest priority. Paul says to them, I've got one aim in life. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. My only aim. I have a hard time affirming that statement. If I'm honest with myself. That that would be my only aim. Can we say that? That the gospel is truly our highest priority. I coached high school track for a couple years in the U.S. And there was this one girl on our track team who was a very, very sweet girl. But she wasn't a very talented runner. She worked really, really hard. And she always came in last in every race. And I remember this one race she was in there weren't that many girls in. I think there were four girls maybe and four girls it was the mile race so it was a long race it was a, a longer distance and as usual this dear girl I'm going to call her Joanne that's not her name but I'm going to call her Joanne she was in last place and it was normal but she was trying her best but then what I and the whole rest of the track team began to notice is that there was one girl ahead of her that was lagging. Something was wrong with her, and she wasn't running freely and, 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 uh, and smoothly. And Joanne started gaining on her. And all of us were watching thinking, Joanne could get third place in this race. For the first time ever, she could place and get a medal. And we're all cheering for her. And then comes the moment as Joanne is reaching this girl and passing her, and Joanne stops. Joanne was a very kind person. She still is, I think. And she put her hand on this, they're still kind of moving, and she's like, and I could tell she was so concerned, how are you, are you feeling okay, are you doing okay, you're not running well. And the long and the short of it is, she stayed alongside that girl for the rest of the race and actually let that other girl cross the finish line in front of her. 
Now, I know, I know, we can look at it and say, wow, what a wonderful sacrifice, what great love, blah, 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 blah. I, I know this. But in that context, that was not Joanne's goal. Her aim was to finish the race as well as she could. And she could have gotten third place and she could have gotten points for the team. So yes, run by, check and make sure she's not dying. No, you're not dying. You're going to survive. Okay, see you later. You know, what is the goal? What is the aim? And it wasn't anything life-threatening, obviously. It was a, a stitch in the side. But, but are we sidetracked in that single aim to which God has called us? His gospel as our highest priority. That's what Paul said that's what Paul showed an example of. So just a brief review. Paul's example, characterized by faithful preaching and teaching, unbiased and consistent in content, by a total surrender to the Holy Spirit in obedience, even leading to suffering, and keeping the gospel as his highest priority. So then Paul moves, he kind of changes gears, and he begins to speak to the Ephesian elders giving to them their responsibility, their charge, what's next for them. And the first challenge he gives to them is to shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock that God has placed under their care. Now, we understand that we are looking at a very specific context of Scripture in which a historical figure, Paul, the father of missions, the apostle to the Gentiles, is giving instructions to specific individuals, also historical figures, the elders of the church in Ephesus. So our temptation can be to say, well, yes, I am not an elder of a church. I'm definitely not Paul. So this doesn't really apply to me. I don't really need to pay attention to this. Um, I can take a nap. But I am going to suggest to you that for almost all of us, there is some flock that God has placed under your care. Anyone over whom you have a position of spiritual influence or authority, that is part of your flock. If you are a parent, your children are your flock. If you are a father, your family is your flock. If you serve in the church context and in the nursery or as a Sunday school teacher, those under your teaching are your flock. If there is a small group that you lead or with whom you meet, that's your flock. So this is a challenge to all of us. Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, shepherd the flock that's under your care. And he's specific about how that's supposed to happen. Number one, keep watch over yourselves. So when you're shepherding, watch yourself. Consider how many high-profile ministers of the gospel have had very public falls in recent years and even decades. They did not watch themselves closely. 
The first step in ministry of any kind is to care for one's own spiritual life first, to continually evaluate our hearts, our actions, the state of our purity, the fruit of our lives. Is the fruit of our lives the fruit of the Spirit, or is the fruit of our lives dissension and division and bitterness and and disintegration? Am I living in sin, consciously unconfessed sin, or am I living in purity? And in this context, Paul speaks to them corporately. Watch yourselves as leaders. Watch yourselves individually and each other. And I think there's a call here to accountability. Is there anyone? I think every Christian needs to ask this. Is there anyone to whom I have given permission to ask me the uncomfortable questions? Is there anyone to whom I have given access to my life, where I have opened myself up and I have allowed them to speak into my life, to speak truth into my life, to speak challenge into my life, to speak exhortation into my life, or am I closed off and individualistic? So first, he says to the leaders, watch yourselves. And we can all imagine situations where we're more concerned about someone else than ourselves and then something bad happens to us. So I'm going to tell you a story that my brother-in-law tells. It's a little bit crude, so bear with me. I'll try to use euphemisms so it won't be quite so disgusting. But he and my sister were given a gift of spending a week at a cabin as a vacation. But ahead of time, they weren't given the full perspective on what this cabin was. And when they arrived at the cabin, they discovered the full perspective. No running water, no electricity, rustic to say the least. Additionally, the outdoor outhouse facilities were behind the cabin and up a hill. So you really had to make a choice. Um, There were also two large dogs that roamed the property. And as my brother-in-law tells it, these large dogs uh, deposit what large dogs deposit all over the place. One night, my brother-in-law needed to use the restroom very badly, and so he left the cabin, and my sister was kind of following him out, and she stood at the bottom of the path as he went up the path toward the outhouse. And um, she called out to him, Look out for the deposits! And he said at that moment, he turned around and looked back down the hill toward her, and he burst into laughter as he saw her looking up at him, so concerned for where he was stepping Well, she had not realized that both of her feet were firmly planted in a large deposit. (laughs) We are to look out for one another. But before we start challenging others on their sin, before we're exhorting others, before we're encouraging others, we need to make sure that our life is right before our Lord. Watch yourselves. Then secondly, watch the flock. Watch the flock. There is no evidence anywhere in scripture of an individualistic Christian. And I know that in, our, in Western society, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, but not exclusively in the North, in the West in general, Western culture tends to be very individualistic and we celebrate the rugged individual. That is not biblical. In the context of Christianity, it is always corporate. 
A disciple is always a member of a family, the family of God, and always a member of the body, the body of Christ. Always. So when, so we oftentimes shut ourselves up because we don't want other pe- people keeping watch over us. We don't want other people to speak into our lives. We don't want other people to challenge us. We don't want other people to exhort us. But the Holy Spirit calls us to watch the flock. And that's a two-way street. To watch and to be willing to be watched. You know, we can look around this room right now, and we are not a large group of people. But I would suggest that we are too large a group for all of us to know each other intimately, for all of us to keep up with exactly what's going on in each one's life, and for all of us to know each other well enough to know what questions to ask about how we're doing. So this is another little plug and encouragement for our community groups. If you are not part, if if you're a regular attender of Calvary, and by regular attender, I'm including those of you who tune into our live feed weekly, I encourage you to join a community group, one of our small groups, because it's in those smaller contexts that we can pray for one another more effectively, that we can know one another more intimately, and that we can encourage one another with more fervor. We can watch the flock in that context much more effectively. So uh, Dale and Tamara Kyes, who lead our community group ministry, they were here in the early service. Obviously, they're not here this service, But if you are not part of a community group but would like to join one, please speak to me after the service. You can also speak to Roberto Garcia, who's in the back, one of our, actually the chair of our, president of our deacon board. And we'll make sure that your name and your contact information are sent to Dale and Tamara. Watch yourselves. Watch the flock. Finally, guard the truth. Guard the truth. From the earliest of times, from the Garden of Eden, Satan has been working to deceive and distract and destroy the people of God. And we often live like that's not a reality, but it is. There's so much pressure in the world for us to conform. That's why Paul tells us, Paul, the guy we're talking about here, in his letter to the Roman church, chapter 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. There is so much pressure put on us, the church, to conform and why is it? Because it's easier. There are things, as I said, easier. There, there, are, there are certain things that it would make the gospel easier. There are certain things that would make my life easier if I didn't believe them. Or if I at least kept quiet about my disagreement with the world. But we're supposed to keep a close watch because even from within the church, people will constantly be trying to distort the gospel, as Paul says. And I think foundationally, foundationally, two ways that the gospel is is distorted. Number one, it's all about me. In other words, I can earn my salvation and salvation depends on me. We call that legalism. Then the other extreme that distorts the gospel is that, you know what, you can do whatever you want because God is love. So whatever you want to do, you just do it. God will forgive. God will love. He doesn't call you to holiness. He doesn't call you to purity. He doesn't call you to obedience. He is love. Just do what you want to do. And I know those are very broad categories, but I think that almost every heresy, 
Almost every distortion of the gospel will fall in one of those two categories. Guard the truth, says Paul. Guard the truth. Okay? All of that comes under the context or the exhortation to, wa- to shepherd the flock. Okay? Shepherd the flock. Watch yourself. Watch others. Guard the truth. So, secondly, stay in the word. Stay in the word. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. I don't want to belabor this point because I've addressed it many times in the past. But in verse 32, Paul commits the Ephesian elders. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. Why? Which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So in a sense, in part, the answer to the previous point to watch themselves, to watch their flock, and to guard the truth, is answered by remaining in the scriptures. Remaining in the scriptures. I know that if, 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 you look, if we look at our lives, there are many times it can be overwhelming when we start listing all the things that we could do better. We start listing all the things that would make us a better disciple or a better Christian or all the areas that we're ashamed of that we need transformation in and we start making this list of how we're going to do better and how we're going to work harder it's like our new year's resolutions of christian transformation it's overwhelming and if that's a context in which you find yourself i want to challenge you to something i want you to challenge you to to boil all of those shoulds all those ways that you need to be better or want to be better and start by forming one consistent habit, and that is of reading and meditating on the Word of God every day. Start there. Start with that. Now, I'm not saying do that and then do whatever else you want. But make that your priority. Create that habit in yourself because the investment in the Word of God is going to bear fruit forever, for the rest of your life. Create that habit now if you have not yet created it. I know that some of you have read the Bible multiple times through. And some of you are very familiar with certain passages, and I've experienced this. You're reading through a particular book, and you get to a passage that you know very, very well, and you're kind of like, I don't don't really need to pay attention to this part, or I'm going to skip this part because I know it well. Don't do that. Just this last week, I was making a recipe for something at home, and um, scones, actually. I've memorized this recipe. I know it by heart. I've made it dozens of times, and I was just about to put it in the oven when I realized I had forgotten a crucial ingredient. I had left it out, and I had to go back to the recipe to figure out what it was. And the only reason I knew that something was gone, I was like, this made a lot less than it usually makes. So, even though you think you know it, even though you think you've memorized it, maybe you have, read it again. Read it again. Thirdly and finally, work generously. We could say work hard, but I want to challenge us in a slightly different way. 
to work generously. I want to reread verses 32 through 35. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Work generously, meaning give your work generously. How? Three quick points. Number one, generosity of time. There are different kinds of generosity. There's different kinds of work. Some are easier for certain people to give than for others. But we are called to give generously of our time. We see this kind of scattered all through Paul's speech. How much time he invested. He gave and gave and gave of his time to teach, prepare, restore, challenge, and encourage. Are we generous with our time for the sake of the gospel and for the building up of the church? Secondly, generosity of effort. As Paul said here, work hard, this kind of hard work, not only for the gospel, but he did it simply to provide for himself so that he wouldn't be a burden on the Ephesian church. Ministering to the flock that is under our care, no matter how small or how large, no matter how formal or informal, will require hard work, a commitment, a dedication, a generosity of effort. And finally, the thing we most quickly and commonly think about when we think of generosity, a generosity with our possessions. Paul quotes Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And he reminds his listeners that God has called them to be generous with the things that they have, with their possessions and with their money. Now, as I said earlier, it would be easy to write all of this off, saying it doesn't apply to us because uh, I'm not a church leader and I'm not Paul. So because I'm not Paul, I'm not a missionary, I don't have to live up to his example, and because I'm not a church leader, I don't have to pay attention to his charge. But I, I think I've already dealt with that issue. Whatever the flock is that's under your care, no matter how formal or informal, how large or how small, and if nothing else, if nothing else, you are your own flock. Watch yourself. So there's somewhere to begin. And in that perspective, then we are each called to faithful preaching and teaching, to leading those under our care to repentance and faith in Jesus. Each of us is invited to total surrender to the Holy Spirit, to go where God wants us to go, to say what he wants us to say, to do what he wants us to do, to use us how he wants to use us, even in the face of and into and through suffering. And as God's daughters and sons who are also his disciples, we are challenged by God himself to keep the gospel as our highest priority. We are to shepherd whatever flock is under our care by watching ourselves, watching the flock, guarding the truth. 
we stay in the word and work generously with our time, our effort, and our possessions. And the result of all of this will be spiritual growth in ourselves and ultimately the strengthening and growth of the kingdom of God. At the same time, if we're honest with ourselves, we will very quickly see that there's no way we could do any of this under our own power. And to try, to try to do it under our own strength is going to be self-defeating. And this brings us to the celebration of communion in which we celebrate the death of Jesus which made a way for the life of Christ to be lived in each daughter and son of God by his spirit.